The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. Amen. Thank you, Justin. Welcome, everybody. Good to see that food will make people move. Uh, that's, that's wonderful. Today, I am going to attempt to cover 11 chapters in the book of Romans in about 25 minutes. So um, buckle up. Here we go. Uh, we are starting our series. The, we're going to cover verse by verse, chapters 12 through 16. Uh, we're going to look at the first two verses of chapter 12 today, but we're not going to get there for about 20 minutes uh, because you need to know the rest of it to understand the first two verses of chapter 12. Uh, so this is going to be an overview. Uh, I want to just put a disclaimer out there right before we get started. Um, there are passages that I'm going to read today that are some of the most intense and amazing in all of Scripture, and I'm going to read them and give them no due diligence, hardly at all, just to be able to continue. We will be coming back to every one of them. We will be unpacking them thoroughly. Uh, so do not think that it's like, man, he usually tries to explain this a little bit better. Um, that's not the intent of today. The intent of today is just to get us all kind of on the same page so that we understand what we're learning uh, in the weeks to come. So the book of Romans was written. It's a letter by Paul to the church in Rome. And yes, it's the Rome, okay? Very much the center of culture, of life and experience when Paul was writing. The church, the Christian church in Rome is about a decade old or so, but for the decade it had been around the majority of the Christians were Jews who had converted to Christianity. Okay, the pagan Romans didn't want a whole lot to do with Jesus. Doesn't mean there weren't pagan Christians or Roman Christians in the church, but the vast majority of the church were Jewish converts to Christianity. So the church looked a lot like the synagogue. You know, the law was still hugely prominent. Circumcision was still a huge deal. The gospel was being proclaimed, but the Jewish traditions really, really dominated. In 49 AD, though, Emperor Claudius, right in the beginning of his reign, he said, I got to get the Jews out of Rome. So that's Jewish Christians, that's Orthodox Jews. Got to get them out because of an uprising in Alexandria. He just wanted them out, didn't trust them anymore. So he kicks the Jews out of Rome. And so I don't know if you can imagine this, but an entire people group that make up 80% of your church are no longer there the next Sunday because the emperor said, you can't be in the country anymore. And so who's left? We've got the Roman Christians who are left and they're like, well, we don't like circumcision and the law. We've got our own stuff that we wanna do. We're more about the grace and the party. So that's how they started to lead the church. The Jews stayed out of Rome for five years. After about five years, they decided we're gonna come back in. Claudius lifted some of the bands. They come back in and they realize their church does not look anything like the church they had left. This is actually talked about in Acts chapter 18, verse two. He says, there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. So this is a big enough statement. This is a big enough thing in history for it to even make it into the scriptures. I want you to think like this. These Jewish Christians who come back to their church after five years or even longer, okay, they find a church that they do not recognize. It'd be like if you were a super conservative Christian. Okay, that's just how you were brought up. It's how you were raised. You're very, very straight-laced. You walk into a church where they're not even really sure if the Bible's true. You walk into a church where they're like, hey, we're here because we want to love on one another and everybody. It's just super, super willy-nilly. You walk in, you're going to feel very uncomfortable. That's what happened to these Jewish Christians who are coming back in. And so they get mad. They get very mad. And about three years after they return, roughly 57 A.D., that's when Paul writes this letter. And most people don't realize this. 
The purpose of the letter to the church in Rome, one of the greatest books in the New Testament, was simply to try to get two people groups that are both Christians to get along to unite two very different people. And Paul used the most beautiful uniting tool that there is, the gospel. He said, hey, y'all, the gospel will unite you. You're divided over the law and circumcision and grace, but the gospel's clear for both. And he writes this beautiful treatise on who God is and what the gospel is and the power that it has. And that's where he begins in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He says this, this is the thesis statement for the entire letter. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Even in the thesis statement, he's trying to unite. We're not divided anymore. Every time Paul walked into a city, he went to the synagogue first. Even though Paul was the missionary to the Gentiles, he'd go to the synagogue first and preach to the Jew. The gospel's for the Jew first, but then for the Gentile, it is to unite them both. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Like I said, we're not going to unpack this, but that's a big statement. Within the good news of Jesus, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith first, from first to last. Not by circumcision, not by the law, not by living right, by faith from first to last. Just as, writ- just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Chapters one through four of the book of Romans are designed to reveal God's righteousness. Paul says that the gospel has the power to save people and to reveal God's righteousness. So what is God's righteousness? God's righteousness is the reality that God always does what is right and just what is right and just, and that he is faithful to all of his promises. Paul's going to lay it out over the first four chapters, just how faithful God is to his promises and how righteous he is. The rest of chapter one, Paul spends ripping on the Roman Christians, the pagan Christians. I know those two words don't go together very well, but he spends them going, hey, you guys are all trapped and broken in your sin. And you need the gospel to address this sin problem. Now you got to imagine this letter is going to be read in its entirety to a Christian church. And you've got the Jews sitting on one side and the Romans sitting on the other side. And after chapter one gets done, the Jews are like, yeah, get them, Paul. These pagans over here trying to mess up my church. They're broken vessels. And then Paul spends all of chapter two in the first three verses of chapter, or first eight verses of chapter three, ripping on the Jews. <laughs> they should have just waited. Because <laughs> all of chapter two says, hey, you're Christians, but you're still holding on to the law. You think because you were circumcised, you're better than everybody else. You're not. And then he finishes, and I I love this. He says, because you had the law, you should have known better. You should be believing. You should be trusting in faith, not in circumcision or the law. You're actually more guilty than the Gentiles. To which the Gentiles erupt. Yeah, that's right. Paul spends the rest of chapter three then making sure that neither group thinks they're that great and explaining where true righteousness comes from. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now, apart from the law, so it doesn't need the law anymore, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets both already testified. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Do you see it again? 
there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The purpose of the letter to unite this Christian church. 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I've never heard anyone present the gospel without using this passage. This verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, all have sinned and have missed the mark. That's the verse that we cling to, but look at what it came right after. The end of verse 22. Hey, guys, stop being so divided. All have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Thank you, Lord. Through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. God sent his son to demonstrate that he is always right and just. His creation had a sin problem. He had to provide a way out. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at this present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Justification means to have right standing before God. And faith in Jesus is how we get that right standing. Justification through faith in the resurrection of Jesus. It allows us to be declared righteous. It gives us right standing before God. Justification gives us a new family. We're now part of God's covenant family. Justification being just gives us a transformed life through faith in Jesus Christ. And I know we're flying, but just try to grasp the enormity of what is stated in these few verses in chapter three. That justification that gives you a new family, a covenant family with God, that's what Paul has been all of chapter four discussing. He goes back to Abraham. He goes, hey, you Jews, you think you're good because you're from the line of Abraham. But look, it's actually justification through faith that makes us part of the covenant family. It's not your last name. It's not the blood that flows through your veins. It's faith and it's justification Chapters five through eight talk about what the gospel produces, and that is a new human, a new creation. Chapters five through eight lay that out very well. In chapter five, Paul starts by saying that it's really because of Adam. Adam's name, if you didn't know this, means humanity. So Adam is the first created being. Adam has this perfect life in the garden, then Adam chooses to sin, and because of that, we are now cursed by Adam's sin nature. And like all of humanity, we'd become slaves to sin and its influence that came through Adam. But Jesus came and lived as no human before or ever after. He stood in our spot and allows us to be justified before God. That's what chapter 5 lays out. In chapter 6, Paul reminds us that the Christians living in Rome, they're choosing to follow Jesus. They're they're still living in their old Adam-like humanity. They need to be desiring a new Jesus-like humanity. They need to push away from the sin that so easily entangles. And he says, baptism is the symbol of this. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life a new humanity, a new creation that comes because of God's righteousness through the gospel and by placing our faith in Jesus. Only by being liberated from our Adam-like humanity can we truly embrace our Jesus-like new life. It's a big one. Chapter 7, then, Paul goes back to address the Jews. 
Okay, if justification comes by faith alone, then why 2,000 years of the law? The law was silly. We just wasted time, God. Why did you do this? Paul goes, oh no, the, it's, the law is not the problem. You're the problem. See, every time I ask you not to lie, not to covet, not to steal, you just did it more. So I put some more laws out there through the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. I, I did this. I gave you 613 laws, give or take one or two. I gave you all kinds of laws. You know what it made you do? Just break them more. The law is not the problem. The law was good. You're the problem. In one of my favorite passages in Romans 7, verses 14 through 17. We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual. I'm sold like a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Anyone who's trying to figure out this new life in Christ has felt this before. What the heck, God? I'm trying. I'm really trying. I just keep doing what I don't want to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. That's Paul's argument. The law is good because you know what you're doing is wrong. The law reveals that. Now, it's only able to reveal lawlessness, but the law itself isn't the problem. If you're doing what you do not want to do, the law is good. As it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is the sin that is living in me. It is a sin problem, not a law problem. And Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, is the answer. And that's what chapter 8 will lay out. You need a new life, a transformed life, a spirit-filled life. A spirit-filled life that allows you to receive all the good things from the law because it is now written on your heart. The rescue of humans is just the first step in a much more grand plan of how God will redeem and rescue all of creation. That's how Paul finishes chapter 8. I know it's all busted, but I got a plan to fix it. It started with Jesus and your salvation, but when I come back, it's all going to be restored back to the way it is or was. Chapters 9 through 11 are the main reason why I didn't start in chapter 1 and go verse by verse through this book. Okay, now I don't know if you've read chapters 9 through 11, but they're weird. They're probably the three weirdest chapters outside of the book of Revelation. Okay, they are not easy to understand, but once you unlock them, they're full of richness. But 9 through 11 are written to the Jew, or the converted Jew, who's going, hey, God made all these promises to us, his children. Is he just throwing those out now? Like with this Jesus thing and all these Gentiles getting to come in and be a part of it, is, is, he, just, is he just wrecking the whole system? Or do we still have a special place in God's heart? And I know there's not a lot of Orthodox or ethnic Jews sitting in this room, so you're like, I don't really care. I'm just glad I'm, I'm getting grafted in. But to the Jew, to the one from the line of Abraham, he's like, you made some promises here. I need to know what you're going to do with those. In chapter 9, he just lays out that, hey, God all throughout history was choosing some and not others. Even from this line, he chose Isaac over Ishmael. He chose Jacob over Esau. They were in the line, but he chooses. And now he's choosing Jesus acceptors and not Jesus rejectors. This isn't new to him. This isn't, this isn't unorthodox. This isn't him going off the rails. This has been throughout history. Chapter 10, he gives reasons why many will reject. But then he comes back around and he says, 
God has all throughout history used rejectors to bring people to himself. And he mentions Pharaoh. He rejected me hard, but I used him to liberate my people. I can even use rejection for my glory and to bring people into the family. Chapter 11, he's, he's more hypothesizing about the future. What will happen to the Jews? Are they going to be completely rejected? Those who never choose Jesus. He's like, uh, I wouldn't bet on it. But God has always been truthful to his promises. And that's why I love the end of chapter 11. Verse 32 puts it in perspective. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may be merciful on them all. Hey, before you start going, I'm in the family, I'm out, just realize everyone's disobedient. Everyone's out. All of sin and falls for the glory of God. But God allows this so that he can show mercy to each and every person, regardless of race, regardless of how you live your life. He's going to show you mercy. Verse 36, for from him and through him and for him are all things, and to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And we come to our text for today. <laughs> Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, underline that because that's the only word we're really going to look at. But remember verse 32 of chapter 11. Okay, he sh did this so he can show mercy to everyone. Therefore, because of this mercy, what do we do? I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that new creation. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We will take at least the next two weeks and probably the, the third to cover just those two verses. So we're going to be in this a while. We'll come back and unpack it, okay? But the therefore, that one word, therefore, in view of this mercy, therefore, what do we do? Since God is righteous, that's what the therefore is referring to. Since God is righteous and has justified those he has by faith, okay? Since that has happened, therefore, you need to be a new type of humanity through Jesus. And since he's merciful to keep his covenant promises, there's some things that you need to do. And Paul's answering it in these first two verses, and he will for the next five chapters. But he says you need to live a transformed life a spirit-filled life, a righteous life that unifies the church so it might complete its mission. I don't know if you've enjoyed this as much as I have, but to take 20 minutes to explain the three probably richest chapters in all of Scripture and then to be able to package it into that one sentence Therefore, because of God's righteousness, because we are justified through faith, because we are a new creation that is now spirit-filled and we are called to live in the promises of God, here's what we're going to go do. That is the summary of chapters 1 through 11. That's the foundation that we need to now build upon. I promise we'll only do a few verses at a time from here on out. But today, what do we do with that? What do we do with that one word? What do we do with that one word? 
We need to realize that understanding who God is and what he has done through Jesus has power to bring salvation, but not just in eternity. Salvation today, salvation from sin. Faith in Jesus has the ability to take a human and free them from the bonds of slavery and sin. I do what I do not want to do. If that's you, there is a proposed freedom that comes not from following the law, but through simply having faith that Jesus has conquered sin. Understanding God allows you to be justified before him in Christ. It allows you to live a spirit-filled life that's no longer captive to a legalistic nature of the law. I talk about this quite a bit, but church, the Holy Spirit is vitally, vitally, vitally important. And a lot of times because it's seen as being more charismatic or not charismatic, we kind of get tripped out by the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. Every. Everyone who claims the name of Jesus needs to be dependent upon and reliant in the Holy Spirit. We can't get, we can't get all weirded out by this. If, we, if we're missing the Spirit, we're, we're missing the boat. That's what Paul is saying. Therefore, therefore, because of God's mercy, live Spirit-filled lives, a life that will look radically different from the old one you used to live, almost like you've died and been reborn as a new creation. We call that a regenerate life one that looks new and that is growing in Christ. A life that will be full of hope and a righteous God that has delivered you and a life that will ultimately be able to bridge divisions among people because you'll be united by the gospel, the good news of Jesus. As the band comes back up here, I want to remind you, I think most of you probably know this, but I'm just going to remind you. Sometimes we need reminding, right? I'm just going to remind you all of that stuff, all that therefore stuff that I just talked about, you can't do any of it on your own. And I know that's frustrating because some of you are highly capable people. You're vastly driven. You're disciplined. You're like, there is nothing I have set my mind to that I have not accomplished. And I can just tell you with all certainty that this is one thing, no matter how hard you try, you cannot do. And that's simply because God doesn't want you to be able to boast about it. God doesn't want you to be like, oh, look at me. I'm, just, I'm as good as Jesus. No, you're not. You're not. And the only way you're going to be like him is to follow him and have faith in him. And he's going to do the rest as he allows you to be righteous and justified. The book of Romans will help us see our own inherent weaknesses and the love that God had to come meet us right where we're at. Hey, church. This righteous God who wants to, by faith, bring you into the family, wants to help you live a new Jesus-like life, he doesn't demand you to do this on your own. He says, I'll meet you right where you're at today. Just right where you're at. If you'll just be real with me. If you'll just be real with me, I will meet you right where you're at. You don't got to come to me. I came to you through my son, Jesus. I did that because I love you, because even though you're disobedient, I want to show mercy to you all. I'll meet you right where you're at. And there are a bunch of you in the room today that need to hear that. Because you feel like God is a bajillion miles away, 
And that even if he did walk in the room, you would be like, uh-oh, he's going to get me. I've been bad. Of course you've been bad. We've all been bad. Even the best one in the room has been bad. Don't think he doesn't know that. You all hide from that. He's merciful. And he'll meet you right where you're at. So to the one in the room who needs to lay down their legalism, will you do that today? For the one in the room who needs to lay down their boastful egotism, would you please allow a righteous God to humble you just a little bit today? Will you accept the precious gift that God has given in the form of Jesus? And I'm not just talking about salvation. I'm talking about life. New life in him. Hope. Freedom from slavery to sin. We're going to unpack that a ton in the next five chapters. But today, I know it's very simple. Can we just start by hitting the reset? By understanding the first 11 chapters? And even if you can't comprehend all that, just you want to know a summary verse? Jesus. Jesus. Some, I mean, some of you, you're like, that's, no, just Jesus. Don't go any further. Just say the name Jesus. Open your heart to Jesus. We've got communion in the front of the room. Help you do that. We'll have some people in the back that'd love to pray with you. But during these next few minutes, Jesus. Father, reveal through your gospel to us your son, Jesus, who is everything that we need. Radically transform our hearts. It's in your name we pray. Amen.